You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Good morning. Our passage from this morning is from John 11, starting in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you you, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scouted abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, They came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. We are in John chapter 11 and going into chapter 12. Um, We are at a point in the Gospel of John's story where we are taking a harsh pivot towards the cross. Everything up to this point has been three years of Jesus performing signs, which, you know, signs point to who he is. They're physical miracles that are meant to communicate spiritual realities. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the resurrection. All these signs he performs points to who he is. He's made astounding claims, telling people who he is, inviting them into life in him, into freedom in him. And today in the story of John's gospel, things have hit the fever pitch where there is the most amount of opposition and concern about the problem of Jesus there there has been yet 
And so this is Jesus' last week. This today begins Jesus' last week before he goes to the Roman cross. And so we get a very clear look at some different people and their opposition to Jesus, what they think about Jesus, and one person in particular who is devoted to Jesus. And so we have some good things to look at today, real good introspection for each and every one of us to see where we are at, how devoted are we to Jesus, how much are we willing to follow him and obey him, even if it comes at total cost to ourselves. So that's what today is about. Uh, there's different declarations, if you will, that are coming from these pages, from these different characters. So before we begin, let's bow our heads and pray and ask God to be with us now. Father, we acknowledge now that you and you alone are holy, and you and you alone are righteous, and you and you alone are worthy of every single ounce of praise and adoration and love that we have. You simply are wonderful. And God, we want our lives, the decisions that we make, the sacrifices that we make, our priorities, we want them all to be defined by your worth and how great we think you are. Teach us today, Father, to be your disciples, to be willing to count the cost and pay the cost to follow you in total devotion. Put that within our hearts, a greater passion, a fire for you, Jesus, to follow you obediently and in trust from here on out. We ask that you do this by your grace, God. Amen. So there's different declarations that we're going to see here, different preferences that people have in regards to Jesus. The first declaration of Jesus, uh, that, that we see here is, Jesus, leave me alone. Jesus, leave me alone. If you go to verse 47, John records that uh, there are chief priests, there are Pharisees, and there is the council that gathers together, and they've come to deliberate about the problem of Jesus. Now, these characters are pretty interesting. The chief priests were selected from the extended family of the high priest. It was more of a political position. Most of these chief priests were Sadducees. They were the more liberal sect of Judaism in that day, and they had the, the, the political majority power. They had the, the majority uh, cultural grab in that day. But there were also the Pharisees that you see there in verse 47. They were national purists. They were spiritual zealots. And some of them were just everyday people who were just passionate about God's law and didn't want to get it wrong. And some of them were scribes, which is basically theologians. But back in the day, it was more of a lawyer because you have to remember in Israel, it's a theocracy. Their theology was their law and their societal codes. And they were the conservative branch of Judaism. So we have here the chief priests, the political ones, the liberal ones, the Pharisees, the purists, the religious ones who were conservative. And then we have the council that's gathered together, and this is a reference to the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is made up of some Pharisees, but mostly of those chief priests and elders and aristocrats of the day. And they would come together, and there's probably 70 of them in the Sanhedrin that would deliberate and come to legislative judicial decisions. In the Sanhedrin, you must know this, though, is under the thumb of Rome. They operate under the watchful eye of Rome, because remember, historically, Israel right now, they enjoy some freedoms. 
They have their law, they have their customs, but they're under the watchful eye of the imperial Rome, right? And so my question is, we have to ask ourselves, is what would cause all these diverse groups of people who don't really get along, who actually don't like each other, to all come together, get in the same room, and get on the same team? What would do that to them? At first glance, it looks like it's their concern for the nation. Look at verses 47 and 48. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They are worried that Jesus is going to start an insurrection. This, this is a week coming, like leading in the Passover. It's about to be Passover, which means millions of Jews from all over the region would be coming into, into the capital city, Jerusalem, at this time. And so they think to themselves, this is going to be bad. Jesus is going to start an insurrection, and Rome is going to have to come in and stomp it out. And whatever privileges and freedoms we enjoy now, they're all going to be taken away from us. So they're concerned on one hand about losing the nation, about losing their freedoms. But if you pay close attention to the words that they use, you see there's actually a higher concern. That's certainly there. The concern for the nation is definitely there, but says their highest concern is our place and our nation. You can see that it's more about the power they have and the influence they have, the status they have amongst this group of people. This is confirmed by Caiaphas the great high priest, as he continued through the story, verses 49 through 50. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you. It's better for you guys that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So do you see the emphasis on what's in their best interest? Jesus is a problem because he might get Rome's attention and then the nation might suffer, but most fundamentally, primarily, he might endanger what makes me happy. He might threaten my personal preferences. Look, all of us in here, just like this group of men, have sources that we look to or live from that give us worth and meaning and value, status, power, those things that make us feel alive, those things that we think make life worth living. And when we put those sources above Jesus, he becomes a great threat. He becomes a great threat because he's asking for more. It would be better, it just would be better if he was out of the picture. It would just be better if we just ignored Jesus. It would be better if Jesus just didn't invade my space. Now look, as long as you think that, that Jesus is a problem, that Jesus is a threat to your happiness, to the sources of emotional happiness in your life, as long as you think like that, you live in a cage of your own making. Let me ask you this. These men have power. These men have influence. They have status. But do they seem free? Do they seem free to you? I don't think so. Go back to verses 47 and 48 and analyze it with me. The chief priests, the Pharisees, the gathered, the council said, what are we to do? For this man, he performs many signs. They've seen Jesus do incredible things that they cannot explain. They're staring at the evidence right in the face, yet what do they do? They are completely unwilling to consider that Jesus might be right. 
that what he's saying, what he's claiming about himself could actually be true. Doubt is good. Doubt is a companion in the journey towards truth. That's not what these men are expressing. What these men are expressing is unbelief. Unbelief, not good. Unbelief is like that, that little kid who sticks his fingers in his ear and says, no, 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 I'm not listening. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. Who doesn't want to hear it because they don't want to give up something. You know, we like to think that we're so rational, uh, that, that we make our decisions from objective logic. That's not the case. We make our decision with our emotions, how we're going to feel about that thing, what, thing that, what that thing is going to do for us. And then we justify our decision with our reason thereafter. So these men, they cannot accept that Jesus could be the hope of the ages, the one who they've been waiting for, the one who will save Israel, because they cannot imagine living without their nation and without their power, what makes them happy. So they're in a cage. You see that? They're in this self-made cage of unreality. They cannot live in reality because they have plugged their ears and covered their eyes so that they do not have to acknowledge what is true because truth threatens them. Truth is inconvenient for them. But also, these men don't seem free because notice how anxious, how fearful, how desperate they are. If you keep on reading the story in verse 48, it says this, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then Rome's going to come and stomp out everything and take away everything. If we let him go on like this, we got to do something. We got to get rid of him. Notice how anxious, scared, desperate they are. See, they're happy as long as things are going smoothly, but things are rarely ever going smoothly in life, are they? Rome's always watching, and now the temperature is rising and things are about to explode. These men, they're not free. Their happiness is so, so fragile. So fragile. We can argue all day long about the proofs of the Christian faith that Jesus is who he says he is. There's tons of ways to talk about that. But unless you're actually willing to be wrong, proven wrong, unless you're actually willing to release those emotional sources of happiness, then you will never change and you will always remain locked in that cage of your own making. Now, do you know how Jesus responds to people who reject him, who, who, who decide to live in that cage? You know what Jesus is going to do for these men? his response to them. He's going to die for them. Look what Caiaphas says in verses 49 to 52. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Sound familiar? So John explains. He keeps on going and says this. He did not say this of his own accord. But being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God, in his like ironic sovereignty, uses the mouth of this wicked, scheming man to utter something totally true, that Jesus is going to die for them and for all people. Jesus would save them from being stomped out. He's not going to save them from Rome, though. He's going to save them from sin and death. And in fact, the worry, the concern of the Sanhedrin that Rome is going to crush them, that worry that Rome is going to crush was redirected onto Jesus. Rome crushed Jesus in the most tragic and horrifying and shameful of ways. 
So I don't present to you this morning, if you're like, Jesus, leave me alone, leave me alone, stay out of it. I don't present to you an intellectual argument today. I present to you the story of the gospel. When we were in sin, when we were weak, when we could not help ourselves, when we lived in the darkness and loved the darkness and wanted only the darkness and not the light, Jesus died for us. One would scarcely die for a righteous person. Maybe for a righteous one person, one would dare to die, Romans 5 says. But God shows his love for us, his heart for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. How amazing is it? I just, we're singing holy, 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 Lord God Almighty this morning. How amazing is it, is it that God, perfect in might and power, who owes nobody anything, is so humble and kind to send his son to earth, to the dirt, to Nazarene soil, to die for people who don't love him. So I don't present to you an intellectual argument. I present to you Jesus who dies for you while you're telling him, leave me alone. He's stretching out his bloody nailed hands to you in love and showing you the Father's heart for you. And let me tell you this. Let me tell you something. If you believe this, if you just begin to build your life on this, that God loves you, look at Jesus. It's the proof. It's all the proof you need. You will be set free from that, from that cage, that cage you're locking yourself in, that you think you need these things to be happy. You don't need them to be happy. All you need to be happy is Jesus and Jesus alone. Can I tell you uh, about Nicodemus? Remember Nicodemus? Back in John chapter 3, he's a Pharisee, probably on the Sanhedrin, maybe on the Sanhedrin here. And he was a follower of Jesus in secret. He didn't want anybody to know why. Because he had to protect his status. He had to protect that place of power. He had to protect all he's ever known. That's been his life for so long, being a Pharisee and amongst the powerful group of people here. But you know when Jesus dies, who shows up to take the body down? Nicodemus does. Nicodemus exited the cage that all these men are trapped in. He gave up his reputation. He gave up his status. He gave up his community. He gave up his privilege. He gave up his power. He gave up his influence. All he had ever known to follow Jesus and be born again, to have a new start, a new life. He traded one source of happiness for the greatest source of happiness. You don't have to remain in the cage, but these men will, at least for this time. So you can ignore Jesus. That's what these men are going to do. You can even kill him. That's what these men are plotting to do. But that will never change the fact that he died for you. But not all reject Jesus. Some just use him. And that's what you see next. So I'm going to get into Mary's backstory, Mary's story here, her act of devotion in the next point. But I first want to highlight Judas's response, his words to what Mary does, because he serves as this foil as this comparison and contrast to Mary, these religious leaders do, and so do Judas. Now, the religious leaders, they want to just ignore Jesus. They want Jesus out of the picture. They just want Jesus to be removed from the situation. Judas, on the other hand, wants to use Jesus, wants to benefit from his relationship with Jesus. Verses 4 through 6, chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. Look what Judas says when he sees Mary do this incredible act of devotion. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas is thinking, man, 
we, I missed out a lot. That could have been sold for a whole year's salary. That's what 300 denarii is. And he knows later on he could have helped himself to that. See, Judas followed Jesus. What's revealed here in this moment is Judas's intentions and motivations all along. He followed Jesus because it was in his best interest. He financially benefited from his relationship with Jesus. Here, here is, here's what's scary about this. Please listen to this. It is possible to appear loyal to Jesus and say all the right things about Jesus. That's what Judas did. I mean, he was one of the 12. He acted in this moment like he cared about the poor. He seemed noble, calling into question this outrageous act of Mary. It seemed like it was like the right thing to say at that time, but all along what's in his heart is, how can Jesus be of benefit to me? And I'm not, not trying to be harsh as I say this. I just think this is the reality that we have to admit and acknowledge. Most of us operate like this. Most of us follow Jesus because there's a string attached to it. Most of us are in this, doing this, walking with Jesus because it stands to benefit us somehow. That's just how we operate. You know what your true motivations are. When the thing that you expect Jesus to deliver on or want Jesus to deliver on doesn't come through or is taken away from you, how would you respond then for you and I? Is your discipleship with Jesus one formula or another? Jesus plus something equals everything or Jesus plus nothing equals everything? Which one are you? Where are you at? Where are you at in your discipleship with Jesus? That motivation, the true intent of your heart is, is realized when that source of happiness, that benefit that you want all along is taken away from you. Then you know whether or not you're really in it for the right reasons. And it's going to happen. God in his kindness actually does expose this in, in our lives over time. When I was 25 years old, I, uh, I heard about this church in downtown Annapolis in Eastport that needed a pastor. They were a church in massive decline. And me as this 25-year-old, fresh out of seminary, seminary, and I'm like, I'm going to go and revitalize that church. And Rebecca and I walked in through those doors, and the next week I was preaching. And the next week I was the interim pastor. It's like, oh man, my dreams are coming true. I get to pastor this church in downtown Annapolis. It was so exciting. And then like four months later, it all blew up. Not in a good way, in a bad way. It was all taken out from underneath us. We were gone one weekend, and then someone there sort of stabbed us in the back, took the church back, and we were out. We were out. And that was a miserable summer. But you know what happened? Like, you know what thought I thought that ran across my mind over and over again? Would I even be a Christian if I wasn't a pastor? Would I even be doing this if I wasn't a pastor? Because that's what I wanted. Because up to that point, see, up to that point in my life, Jesus had been pretty, pretty agreeable with me. Things have been going my way, I think. You know, those emotional sources of happiness that were in place, but now the main one, the majority one was taken away. And now I'm thinking, would I really be doing this in the first place if I didn't have that status? If I didn't have that source of happiness that I've wanted all along? That only really comes because I'm a Christian. See, what's that thing? If you were to lose it, would make you abandon Jesus, would make you throw in the towel? We all have that thing. Each and every one of us have that secret thing that we want to benefit us in our relationship with Jesus. Judas had it. It was money. And eventually he turned on Jesus. Why? 
Because he was offered 30 pieces of silver and he no longer need, needed Jesus to have what he wanted. He got the benefit without Jesus. So now what, what is Jesus to him? Irrelevant. And that's, if our heart's not in the right place, that's the exact sort of crossroads that we're going to face. The thing that we really want all along, it might be taken away from you to show you that's what's really in your heart. But the worst thing that can happen is you can get it apart from Jesus and turn on him and never follow him again. You have to know your heart's intentions. Why are you following him in the first place? Is it for something or is it for Jesus and Jesus alone? Here is Jesus' response. Jesus knows Judas's heart condition. He knows Judas is going to turn and betray him in a week from now. But he counters Judas's dishonesty with a very, very, very important analysis. Verse 7, look. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it, meaning the ointment, the perfume, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, Mary, I don't think anyone knows that Jesus is about to go die on a Roman cross. Mary doesn't know that she's anointing Jesus for a future burial, but Jesus knows in this act that's what's happening, that he's being anointed for his his future death, prepared for his future death. So he says, leave her alone. Why? Leave her alone, Judas. Why? Verse 8. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, Jesus is stating that it is appropriate, totally reasonable, that he receives such an act of costly devotion, even though the poor could be greatly benefited from it. Because honoring Jesus and celebrating Jesus is the most important and most urgent thing that there is in our life. So before he dies, it's no longer there to be honored and celebrated. It's only appropriate to celebrate him now. Now, if Jesus wasn't holy, 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 if Jesus wasn't Lord God Almighty, if Jesus wasn't worthy of every ounce of our breath, this would be totally inappropriate, wouldn't it, to say such a thing? You always have the poor with you. This is my moment. That's inappropriate unless Jesus is God who is worthy of everything. And that's how he responds to Judas. That's how he responds to you and I who don't have real motivations, real authentic, pure motivations in following Jesus. He says, here I am right now. Here I am right now. This is our moment. Will you put aside the thing that you're holding on, that you're secretly wanting from me, and just have me and he alone, me alone? Because poor you always have with you, but God in flesh, holy, 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 worthy, beautiful, good, one true God, right here, right now, this is our moment. He's offering you something better. Jesus is offering us something better than the things that we want from him. So for those of us who treat Jesus instrumentally, like what can I get from him? Even in this rebuke right here, there's an invitation So would you be willing to stop the facade and drop the act, release the idol, elevate Jesus from someone who must agree with you and play by your rules to your benefit to God, who must be worshipped with all devotion and without limitations? Worship God with total devotion, no limitations. And that's what Mary demonstrates. That's the third cry, declaration from the story. Jesus, here's all of me, take all of me, verses 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, 
Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there to celebrate Jesus for what he had done. He did this incredible miracle, this sign, raising somebody from the dead. And so they throw a party for Jesus. Makes sense. Martha served. Lazarus was one of, the, of those reclining with him at the table. Now continue on in verse 3, and look what Mary does. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. That's a lot of nard. I really want to say that. I want to say that. Okay. That's a lot of nard. Almost a pound of nard in the Greek. Almost a pound of, of this ointment made from pure nard. This entire flask is pristine perfume and is reserved for Jesus and Jesus alone. And look what she does. Verse 3, continue with me. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, in the ancient times, men and men alone would be in the dining room, lounging around a table, a big circular table, and they would have their feet extended from them, away from them, and they would lounge towards the table, and women would be in the kitchen typically. And their feet, of course, you know, are caked with Palestinian dirt and whatever else is found on those roads. And so here is Mary anointing Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume and her hair. This act of love is breaking all sorts of social code. It would be seen as social suicide. Remember, Mary is wealthy. She's in the respected social class. But she ventures into this room with men. She soils her hair, which culturally speaking is her beauty, and then she pours this perfume on him. This is undignified behavior. In this moment, this would be jaw-dropping, awkward, taboo, completely undignified behavior, and it reflects completely poorly on her. But she wanted this act of devotion to be as personally involved and personally costly as possible. And then this act of love continues, verses 4 and 5. Judas Iscariot, here's what he says about it. You remember, we've read it once. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Again, 300 denarii. That's a whole year's wages, a whole year's salary. Now, there's not much consensus about what this flask of perfume is. Uh, the, the options are it could be an heirloom, a really expensive, priceless family heirloom, which means this is like a great part of her inheritance that she's giving to Jesus. Or it could be a dowry gift. Mary is of marriageable age. This could be what her betrothed gave her to put the down payment for to, to marry her. In that case, if that's what this is, this is the ultimate sacrifice. This is her saying, I'm holy, I'm holy yours, Jesus. I'm devoted to you. No distractions, no divisions. Or because we know this family is wealthy, it could have been bought just for this occasion. She spent a whole year's income on this one gift to give to Jesus here in this one moment. And Judas rightly declares what? <laughs> this is wasteful. This is wasteful. I mean, imagine spending your entire year's salary in one act. Like in one moment, you lose it all. Imagine all the energy and sacrifice you make every working day of the year, eight to five, going towards one act of thanks to Jesus. Gone in a moment. Wasteful. That's what this is. It's just wasteful right? All of us in here, I mean, myself included, I'm just going to be honest with you. 
all of us in here are thinking one thing right now. This is extreme. Like, this is radical. This is excessive. But Mary thought that this was only reasonable. Have you ever met someone who's just like sold out for Jesus? Have you ever met someone like that? Sold out for Jesus? Our impulse is to write those people off as extremists, but biblically, what we think of extreme, what we think is extreme is totally normal. See, our apathetic reservations are what is strange, but we don't want to acknowledge that, and that's why we label people who are wholly devoted to Jesus as intense or weird or strange, but really, we're the strange ones, aren't we? You know, I doubt if any of us come close to this kind of devotion. I doubt if any of us estimate Jesus to be this great. Typically, we're so stingy with money, stingy with time, protective of our resources, hesitant to commitment, scared of inconvenience. There are some who just want Jesus to leave them alone. And there are some who want to treat Jesus instrumentally. But Mary wants the opposite. She wants Jesus to consume her life, and she wants to be his instrument. There are some who are afraid of what relationship with Jesus might cost. There are some who are interested in relationship insofar as what they get from Jesus. Mary is the opposite. She wants to pay the cost and wants to give to him. She is devoted. She is devoted. How did she get here in her discipleship to Jesus? What launched her to this place of profound, radical discipleship, which we would say, strange, weird, uncomfortable, but that's what's normal biblically, and our apathy and reservation is actually the weird thing. So what happened to her? Because what happened to her needs to happen to me, right? What happened to her needs to happen to us. Fourth declaration from this story, Jesus, grace me. (laughs) Give me your grace. Let me see your grace. The reason why Mary is moved to deep devotion is because she has witnessed the love of God in power. Jesus has just returned her brother Lazarus from the dead and changed her life, restored her brother to her. And a good word to summarize, the love of God displayed in power that moves a person A good way to describe that is grace. That's what grace is. Grace, okay, it's a very tricky word to define because context really determines how we would understand it. The free gift of salvation that we have in Jesus is called grace. The sacrifice of Jesus' life for us is called grace. Our election is called grace. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are called a grace. But underneath all of those things, the commonality between all those ideas is that they are applications of the love of God in power, which always have an effect on the recipient. Grace is God's love in power, which always has an effect on those who receive it. And Mary is on the receiving end of God's love moving in power. She has been graced. And that's what moves her into deep devotion. Now let me draw your attention to something here that we shouldn't miss. It's really important. Jesus' act of grace in raising Lazarus from the dead is a sign. Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life, right? 
That miracle he performed is telling us something about him and what he's going to do for us on the cross. So Jesus' act of grace in raising Lazarus from the dead is a sign that points to his own resurrection from the dead to conquer our sin, forgive us, and reconcile us. Now listen here. Mary's act of devotion was given in light of a grace that was a mere shadow of the true grace to come. How much deeper, how much more unflinching should our devotion be since we've been graced with the full and total grace of Jesus' death and resurrection? Mary was moved by her brother's return from the dead by the power of Jesus. How much more can we be moved by the ultimate return from the dead by Jesus himself? Remember verse 7, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. We have all the more reason to enter into devoted discipleship to Jesus since we have what Mary's gift pointed to, which is Jesus's return from the dead. What I'm trying to say is that we have the fullest expression of God's grace in the gospel, which Lazarus's resurrection is only a mere shadow of. So then shouldn't Mary's devotion be the baseline since it was inspired by the shadow and not even the substance, not even, not even the real thing which all this points to. We've been graced by Jesus more than we could ever ask. The greatest grace has already been displayed. So how do we get leveled by this grace, okay? It's the gospel. The grace of God in its fullest, clearest revelation is the cross and the tomb. And so how do we get moved by that? First, four things to end here. First, examine yourself. I invite you to examine yourself. Which of these profiles do you think you fit? Do you wish Jesus would just leave you alone and go away better off dead? Do you wish Jesus would go along with you and benefit you without becoming anything more than a means to an end, not intruding, not threatening? Or do you live in deep devotion to him because of all he's done for you? Not perfect devotion. We're not going to arrive at perfect devotion. We'll never reach total devotion because how could we? But earnestly, are you earnestly, honestly trying and striving to live devotedly to Jesus? Now, if you're in those first two categories, Jesus, leave me alone. Jesus, benefit me. God probably right now is working to move you into that third category. Jesus, here's all of me. Take all of me. So don't be surprised if you're suffering right now. We're getting stretched right now. We're experiencing loss and delusionment right now because God is trying to rattle that cage. God is trying to break you out of the prison that you've locked yourself in, thinking you need those things, those preferences, those sources of happiness, whatever makes you feel alive apart from Jesus. Jesus not going to lie. He's threatening those things, invading those things. The light always invades the darkness. So don't be surprised right now if those benefits or those sources of happiness are disappearing or disappointing you because Jesus is doing that. God is doing that. Getting after your heart, calling you into deeper devotion and discipleship to him. There was this sagely follower of Jesus late in his life who was interviewed by a writer. And so this writer is sitting with this old man and asked him, do you still wrestle with the devil? Talking about temptation. Do you still wrestle with the devil? The old man reflected for a while and then replied, Not any longer, my child. I have grown old now, and he has grown old with me. He doesn't have the strength. I wrestle with God. 
with God, exclaimed the astonished young writer, and you hope to win, was his reply. And that old sagely man said, I hope to lose, my child. I hope to lose. You're in a fight with God right now, who is moving you deeper into discipleship, and the hope is that you would lose that fight to him, and he move you deeper into devotion. First, examine yourself. Where are you at? What's going on in your life? Do you have the eyes to see what God is up to? Second, second, the grace of God has been revealed in the, go- in the gospel. Now we have to interact with that grace. We have to interact with grace. Philippians 2 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen to the words here, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which means use whatever little amount of willpower you have. If there's any amount of discipline and desire that you have within you, use it to move closer to Jesus. Why? Because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, meaning you use whatever little power you have to get close to God to receive all the power that he has, that he wants to give you. He wants to grace you, level you, demonstrate his love to you in power and blow you away. You have to interact, though. You have to interact with this grace. And so you get up a little bit earlier. You commit to read the Word, be in the Word. You commit to prayer, not perfectly, not like a scholar. It's no pressure, but just begin with whatever little resources of energy you have to move in the right direction And I'd bet God will make something of that. I mean, God turns five loaves and two fishes into a multitude of, uh, to feed multitudes. He can do little with our little. He can do much with our little. Titus 2, again, I want to read this. says something similar. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. The grace of God has appeared in the gospel. Do you believe that? That the love of God has been powerfully displayed. So then he continues, Paul continues in Titus and says this, Training us training us. The grace of God has appeared and now trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior who gave himself for us. The point is that the grace of God, it changes us. It does this transformative work in us only if we let it train us. Now think about a personal trainer. You know, a personal trainer. What does a personal trainer do? They create a plan, and they hold you to it. They keep you accountable, and they work with you to get you in shape. They give you guidance, and you have to submit to that plan to see results. The gospel can and should do the same thing to us. It should transform us. So then, listen. It's not enough to just agree with the gospel. Like, yep, that's true. I've heard that. That's right. It's not enough to do that. It's not enough to just rehearse it to yourself. You must now interact with the gospel, study it, get near it, let it mold you as you submit yourself to it, just like you would a personal trainer. Be trained by the grace of God that has appeared. So if your heart and life, if it, if it lacks that passionate devotion to Jesus, I bet it can be traced back to whether or not you're practicing those spiritual disciplines. If you're in the Word, if you're drawing near, if you're abiding in Him, 
And this, this isn't a legalistic or performance thing. This is a love and priority thing. The spiritual disciplines are not meant to crush you and overwhelm you. They're meant to transform you and liberate you. They're a blessing. They're not a burden. And so interact with God's grace. He, he's made his grace known. It has appeared. Now will you walk into it and encounter it? Third, third, make devotion personal and costly. Make devotion personal and costly. One thing <clears throat> that I'm learning right now is that obedience to God when there are no benefits, <laughs> but rather instead when there's actual cost, sacrifice, loss, that's our gift to Him. When we obey God, especially when it is inconvenient, we're telling Him just what He means to us. So whenever I'm tempted to feel sorry for myself because I have sacrificed these things or go without these things or what I do goes unnoticed, I think to myself, I literally think to myself, this is my, this is my gift to you, God. This is my act of total surrender. This is my release to you because this is just how much I think of you. This is how much I think you're worth. I want to give you everything. I want, to, I want to give you what's hard. I don't want to do this casually. I want to be all in. So this thing that is painful to give, that I'd rather not have, that's really frustrating, this is my gift to you, God. So right now you're going through some stuff, maybe. God's calling you into that deeper transformation, into deeper freedom, into deeper discipleship, and it hurts those sources are getting demolished that you've been looking to for a long time to make you happy. The benefits that you thought Jesus would bring, they're beginning to disappear. Will you keep going because Jesus died and was raised for you? And was that, is that enough? Will that be enough? Is that enough to keep going? Trusting obedience is how we demonstrate to God how much we think of Him. I remember an employer once sat me down and he said, Joey, I'm going to pay you this much because here's how much I think you're worth. And I was like, well, I don't like that very much. <laughs> but that conversation happened. When we obey Jesus, especially when it's personal, especially when it's costly, we're telling Jesus just how much he's worth. Mary's devotion was undignified. It was outrageous. It was a whole year's salary given to Jesus in one moment. The point of the story, though, is not for us to give our entire salary away. It's to practice a devotion to God that's reasonable in light of the cross. Really, in light of the cross, we don't have much to give, do we? Like, how can we even begin to repay the debt we owe to God? We can't. But what I do have, I will give. There's this song that I love. It's really simple. The chorus is this. I don't have much. I don't have much but I have a heart that beats for you. I have a heart that beats for you. I don't have much. I don't have much, but I have a heart that beats for you. We can never repay God or thank him enough, but we can do all we can. This is why we read Romans 12 in our corporate reading. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, right? That grace, the gospel, in view of all that God has done for us to now offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We are putting our living, breathing bodies, our hands, feet, minds, and mouth 
our jobs, obligations, responsibilities, choices, our money and homes and resources and freedoms on the altar as a gift back to God. Third, make devotion personal and costly. Lastly, fourthly, I love this point. You ready? You never know what God will do with someone who's wholly devoted. What God can do through one person on fire. Three of the four Gospels record this account of Mary giving this perfume. It's one of the most referred to accounts of the early church fathers. Earlier in John 11, when the story began about Lazarus dying, look, look what it says in verse, verses 1 and 2. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, and then like, almost like you know, commentary put in there by John just to give a wink and a nod. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Like People knew this story. People knew of the legend of Mary who gave everything she had to Jesus in one moment of outrageous worship. It left a tremendous impression on all of the gospel writers, on all of those who heard the story. Even more incredible, John uses this act of devotion to pivot his entire story towards the cross. Like she serves as the hinge point to his story about Jesus. And Jesus is alerted in this act that his time has come. That's why in verse 7 he says, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Her gift was preparing Jesus's body for the tomb, even if she didn't know it. So her act of devotion literally initiated the pinnacle event of history. The point is, you never know what God can do with just one person who's undignified and outrageously sold out for him. You never know what God can do with that one person. The thing is, it may start with one person, but it never ends with just one person. So young people, like teenagers right now, teenagers, do you know how many history-altering people were teenagers when they felt God's call to them? When they took seriously their faith, when they stepped into all that they could have in Jesus. They were just teenagers. They were just kids, but they were called to missions. They were called to ministry. Hudson Taylor, George Whitfield, Billy Graham, Jim Elliott, Amy Carmichael, so many more. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. We take you seriously, and your age does not exclude you from deep devotion to Jesus. So many people who changed the world started off as teenagers who were on fire when nobody else was. Anyone know who Jeremiah Lamphere is? Anyone know that name? He was just a businessman in 1849, 49 years old, came to faith at 49 at a revival service. And then he, on his own dollar, started printing materials and inviting just other businessmen to start praying with him Wednesdays at 12 during their lunch break. The first week, six people showed up 30 minutes late. The second week, 20 people showed up. The next week, 40 people showed up. And the week after that, the stock market crashed and they started praying every day and they had to turn people away. It, people just flooded in the doors and started in New York and went to Philadelphia and all these other major cities. All because one man, a layman, not a theologian, not a pastor, a 49-year-old businessman, a new believer who didn't know much, just sold out for Jesus. 
in that two years, 1849 to 1850, there's a movement of God that occurred. An estimated one million people came to faith, and it's called the New York City Prayer Meeting Revival. You never know what God can do with one person who's wholly devoted. Would that be you? Would that be you? I was having a conversation this last week with someone, uh, one of you, and we were talking about revival. Revival always happens when people are just sick and tired of the status quo. Sick and tired of going through the motions. Sick and tired of just playing it safe. Sick and tired of the darkness, injustice, the unraveling of people, the destruction of sin. Sick and tired of it all. I've had enough and begin to pray and begin to live sold out to Jesus. I'm telling you, the grace of God has appeared. And when you receive the grace of God, it does a work in you and then it does a work through you, outside of you. Would we, would we, could we be that community of people who are affected by God's grace so much so that we, like Mary, are just outrageous, wasteful in our devotion to Jesus? I hope so. I think it can be the case. Let's pray. God, we don't have much. We don't have much. We have a heart that beats. We have hands and we have feet. We have minds and we have mouths. We have jobs and we have money. We have responsibilities and we have relationships. We don't have much in light of the grand scheme of things. In light of all that you've done for us, Jesus, we don't have much. But what we have, we want to give to you. And it's just a drop in a bucket compared to the debt that we owe you, God. But we want to leave nothing off the altar. We present our bodies as living sacrifices. We want to consecrate ourselves to you, Jesus. Jesus, we don't want you to leave us alone. Jesus, we don't want to use you as a means to an end. We're not concerned about what benefits us. We're not concerned about what's in it for us. Jesus, here's all of us. Here's all of me. Grace us. Overwhelm us by your grace. Do work in us. We do not want to leave here, God, without change, without greater obedience and faithfulness, without greater courage and passion for you. Do this, God, in us. It's only by your grace. We use whatever little willpower we have right now to make that commitment to you, and we ask you, God, to flood our hearts with your grace. We invite your light into our darkness. Change us. Make us like Jesus. Send us out of here, Jesus, as people who look like your son. Walking through the world with compassion, walking through the world in power, walking through the world ready to make any sacrifice we can make for your glory. God, you're calling us into deeper discipleship. We want to say yes. And so help us, God, increase our faith. Help us in our unbelief and move us along, God. But Lord, all we have is a yes. All we have is what little we have. We give that to you now, and Lord, multiply it exponentially. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.